Well, if uh, you have your Bibles, please also turn with me uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Uh, we will be continuing our study in John's Gospel uh, there. Uh, and as you are turning there, I wanted to, to read you a, uh, a short story that Pastor Juan Sanchez recently wrote uh, in a book he published. And uh, he says this, he says, My parents couldn't afford to send me to university, so... To pay for school, I enlisted in the United States Navy. And in God's kindness, I eventually won a Navy scholarship to the University of Florida. And as a part of my training, I served on a tugboat one summer. Our job was to guide large ships through the harbor without incident, using only thick, heavy lines, ropes to the non-nautical. He says, one morning, the petty officer assigned to the tug was preparing the lines you can imagine how thick and heavy they had to be to pull such large vessels. Yet he was throwing them around like they were dental floss. And as he organized the lines, he started to badmouth Christians, going on and on about how hypocritical and unreliable they were. Then he looked up at me, 19 years old at the time, and only a Christian for two years, and he said, You're not one of those Christians, are you? That was it. That was the first moment of truth in my young Christian life. It was the moment to stand for my faith and muster the courage required not to deny my Lord. It was the moment to declare my allegiance to King Jesus and in love explain the gospel to the skeptic. So I responded, Me? No, no, not me. And he says, What happened? Why at that moment did I become a coward? It's simple, really. I was afraid. I was afraid of what that intimidating, unbelieving sailor would think of me. What he might say to me or what he could do to me. I was afraid to suffer, even if only a little, for the name of Christ. And I suspect I'm not the only one. I can say, yeah, he's, he's not the only one to be worried, to be intimidated uh, by uh, someone around him when they ask if he is a Christian. Uh, maybe you have experienced similar circumstances, maybe not with a big, burly, petty officer, uh, but maybe with uh, an elderly neighbor, maybe with a co-worker, maybe with uh, an employee, maybe with a friend or a family member, where the, the name of Christ has come up and you have grown fearful, or you have grown silent. Sometimes we can openly deny Jesus, or sometimes we can quietly deny him by not speaking when we should. And afterwards, how do we generally feel? Yeah, horrible. Well, we go to God asking for forgiveness, acknowledging that we should be more bold, that we know what we should have said in that instance, but we didn't. We fell short. We swung and missed. And so what we see this morning, as we look at a man named... John, also known as John the Baptist. What we're going to see is how do we respond faithfully to opportunities? How do we speak boldly about Jesus to others? How are we to speak about him? How are we to speak about ourselves? How can I speak about Jesus without being afraid? And what does it mean that I am afraid to speak of Jesus. Those are all the questions that we will see as we look at 
John chapter 1 this morning. And as we come to John chapter 1, verse 19, uh, we have entered a new portion of John's gospel. The first 18 verses that we've been looking at encompass uh, the introduction to the gospel. Uh, where uh, we, we've spoken of it as the foyer uh, to uh, the hotel of John's gospel. He's going to introduce us uh, to all of the main themes that he's going to talk about. Uh, everything that we need to know uh, as a preface to the gospel, John has already told us in the first 18 verses. And now we come to verse 19, and things are going to be different. This is actually the beginning of the narrative portion of the gospel where John is going to begin to write and tell us about what Jesus did, not just who he was in eternity past, but now who Jesus is and what he did. In chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of chapter 12, uh, is oftentimes called the book of signs. Uh, It's the the portion of John's gospel in which uh, Jesus performs his miracles and reveals himself to the nation of Israel. And then in chapter 13, he's going to spend all of his time from that point forward uh, with his disciples, and then he's ultimately going to be arrested and crucified. So the first 12 chapters have this emphasis upon Jesus revealing himself to the nation of Israel, and there's going to be an increasing hostility to Jesus. That's what we're going to see, that as the chapters progress, uh, the Jewish leaders are going to become more and more hostile towards Jesus and his ministry. They're going to openly accuse him. They're going to slander him. And then ultimately they're going to conspire to have him murdered. And that is what we will begin to see. And all of that was already predicted and told to us in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. It says, He, speaking of Christ, the light, the logos, the word, He was in the world, And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And and what we're going to see is, how, how does John the Baptist announce who Jesus is to a world that is hostile to the person he is announcing? Which is going to give us insight and understanding to how do, how do we do the same thing? How do we speak of Jesus in a world that is hostile towards him? How do we speak of Jesus when uh, there are so many opportunities to share the gospel, but we, with them, accompany temptations to not speak of him, temptations to shrink back in fear, to not speak of Jesus? So what does it look like to bear faithful witness to him? And we've we've seen John the Baptist before. We saw him in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. We saw who he was. As a messenger of God, we saw his function. He was to witness uh, about the light, about Jesus. And the purpose behind his ministry was to prompt people to believe in Jesus, to point people to the Savior. So what is it that's here in these verses? As we as we come to verses 19 through 28, which we're going to look at this morning, we see uh, the testimony of John fleshed out a little bit more. It was summarized earlier in this chapter, and now we're going to see what he actually did and how he spoke, what he said about Jesus. And these verses teach us how to speak about Jesus, how to speak about ourselves as we all live as ambassadors for Christ. Every one of us, uh, every believer, is assumed to also be a a missionary. Now, if you believe in Jesus, it is assumed that you will now go forward and carry uh, the message of the gospel to others. And that's, this is what uh, the Apostle John is assuming of all of us. And 
Now, this is what was clearly seen and beheld in the early church. Now, there's a, a historian, Edward Gibbon, who's written a very uh, famous book, very accurate book, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, re- recording what took place as the in the Roman Empire as it fell. And he says this, that in the early church, this is a, uh, a secular author, he says, in the early church it became the most sacred duty of a new convert to diffuse among his friends and relations the inestimable blessing which he had received. So he says, hey, in the church it was understood that if you became a believer, you were then called to pass that message along to those around you. Another historian says that we cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was really accomplished by means of informal missionaries. What he means by that is that that every believer is a missionary in some sense. Some do it formally, you know, pastors, elders, uh, that that is their their role and their position. But every other believer is a missionary informally. And we see this in the early church. If you you turn over to Acts chapter 8, as the church was commissioned by Christ to be his witness, to be his testimony to... Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, we, we get to the Acts chapter 8, and they haven't gone very far. They're still in Jerusalem. And so the Lord uses persecution to get their attention. At the end of Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen has just been murdered. He's just been martyred because he said to the same group of people who crucified Jesus, the Sanhedrin, he says, hey, you murdered the Christ." You murdered the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And so they stoned him. And we pick up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for who? The apostles. So you have the church scatters. So who's still in Jerusalem? The apostles. Where's everybody else? Scattered. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And look at verse 4. Those who were scattered, what did they do? They said, I better be quiet because the church is being persecuted. No. What did they do? They says, now those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. See, the church grew, the church spread uh, by every Christian going and being a missionary. Every Christian going and proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel. That is what the church did. That is how the church grew. And as we come to John the Baptist, what we see is the, the prototype of what it looks like to be a faithful witness, to be a faithful proclaimer of who Jesus is, is what we see in the ministry and the life of John the Baptist. And what we're going to see as we look at this section this morning, verses 19 through 28, is two two attitudes of a faithful witness that we see in John the Baptist and that we also need to adopt if we're going to speak rightly of Jesus. These are the attitudes that we need to put on. And number one is that we need to assign no importance to ourselves. John didn't assign any importance to him, to himself, And then secondly, what we will see is that a faithful witness announces the supremacy of Christ. Let us look at our verses for this morning. Uh, Begin with me in John chapter 1, verse 19. 
John writes, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So let's, let's look first at, uh, at the first attitude that we see in John the Baptist and that we are to adopt it. A faithful witness assigns no importance to himself. And this is seen... Now, in the first paragraph, in verses 19 through 23, and verse 19 and verse 28 give us the setting for this entire section. Uh, we see that there has been a delegation uh, that was sent to John as he's baptizing in the wilderness. Uh, and he's in a place called Bethany across the Jordan. Uh, and some of you I know here in the uh, congregation have been to Israel, so you have a, a visualization uh, of where Bethany is in relationship to Jerusalem. There's a there's a little town called Bethany that's about two miles away uh, from Jerusalem, but this isn't that Bethany. Uh, it's distinguished in John chapter uh, 11, verse 18, where uh, John says, "Hey, there is a Bethany that's two miles away, but this is how does he, how is this Bethany described here?" Bethany across the Jordan. So this is uh, a long ways away, probably somewhere northeast uh, of Jerusalem. Uh, and this is uh, this would be a long trip for a delegation to come all the way up to see John the Baptist. Uh, and John had a ministry of baptism. Uh, and uh, prior to John the Baptist's ministry, uh, baptism was something that only Gentiles uh, participated in. They, they uh, participated in baptism in order to become a Jew. Now, other uh, Jewish uh, groups would do something similar to baptism, kind of as a as a cleansing, as an acknowledgement of, hey, I am a sinner in need of being washed internally by God. Uh, but there wasn't a baptism in this same way. This uh, proselyte baptism, the process of a Gentile becoming a Jew, uh, baptism was administered on your own. Uh, you would baptize yourself in that instance, saying, I need to be washed, I need to be cleansed. And it was an acknowledgement that you were going to turn away from your old manner of living and you were going to now become a Jew. Uh, that, that's the, the background prior to John the Baptist's ministry. And so John comes and his baptism was different. First and foremost, it was a baptism of repentance and, and faith, uh, acknowledging that you believe and are turning from sin and to God. Secondly, John was the one who administered the baptism. It wasn't something that they did on their own. John was the one baptizing and then also, his ministry of baptism wasn't just to Gentiles, it was to Jews. So what, what John was saying is that the Jews were separated from God, that they needed to repent and turn to God in faith, which the Jewish leaders didn't like, because they had a superiority complex, you could say. 
that they felt that they had a right relationship with God simply because they were Jews. And to say to a Jew, hey, you need to repent and get right with God because you have rebelled against him, even as we will read in Hosea, that would have been a big no-no. And But people were coming from far and wide to see John the Baptist. Luke 3, 7 says that the crowds were coming to him to be baptized. Now, and if you can uh, imagine with me, so we're, we're in first century Palestine, first century Israel. The people of Israel haven't had a prophet in over 400 years. There was a great expectation and an anticipation of the Messiah coming, of him coming to save his people, because the people of Israel were now under the authority of Rome. Rome has taken control and is ruling over the nation. They have some autonomy, but ultimately Rome is the boss. And so when John begins his ministry, this prophet out in the wilderness baptizing and speaking the word of God, there is a great excitement and anticipation of who this man is. What is he going to do? John's ministry was a big deal because they were hungry and thirsty for God's word. And because of his popularity, the Jewish leaders began to uh, to be concerned. They began to say, well, who is this man? What is he doing? Why is he doing it? And so they sent this delegation to question him, to find out who he is. And the thing that they were most concerned about was the first thing that John here says that John the Baptist denied. And this said, hey, are you the Christ? And John denies it. He's emphatically saying, look at me at verse 20. He says, he, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. A little bit of redundancy there to emphasize. John never claimed to be the Christ. He's not going to try and take any of the fame and honor due to the Messiah, which would have been really easy for him to do, right? To say, hey, look at how important I am. But no, he says, I am not the Christ. And then they asked two more questions of him. They said, well, are you Elijah? And what that's referring to is a prophecy by Malachi, Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4.5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so there was an anticipation. So if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? Are you the forerunner to Jesus? Are you are, are the forerunner to the Messiah? Are you the one who's going to point us to him? And John dressed like Elijah. He wore a camel's hair garment and a leather belt. And so there was this anticipation, this possibility that he was Elijah. But what's interesting here is John says, no, I'm not the Elijah. What's interesting about that is uh, later on, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the Elijah. So here you have John saying, no, I'm not him. But Jesus says, yeah, he was the Elijah to come. He was the, the forerunner. And so we have to figure out what the, what he means by that. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's identified this way. Well, I, the Jews believed that Elijah would return physically, that he would literally come back down from from heaven. Uh, Jesus or Elijah was taken up uh, without dying, and they said, "Hey, maybe he's going to return physically back to the earth, and he's going to proclaim who the Messiah is going to be." And so, in that sense, when if that's their expectation, John has to say no. We know about the birth of John in Luke chapter 1. 
He's a cousin of Jesus, uh, born of Elizabeth and Zacharias. So he he was not Elijah, but he was Elijah-like. Luke 1 says that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And additionally, we also can understand that at this point in time, it seems like John the Baptist didn't understand and fully comprehend his own importance. He didn't necessarily understand that he was definitively the Elijah because that remains to be seen. And Jesus made it final. He made it concrete. One pastor says this about John the Baptist, that no man is what he is in his own eyes. He really is only as he is known to God. At a later time, Jesus equated John with Elijah of Malachi's prophecy. But that does not carry with it the implication that John himself was aware of the true position. Jesus confers on John his true significance. No man is what he himself thinks he is. He is only what Jesus knows him to be. So John didn't quite understand, but Jesus understood fully who he was. He says he is the Elijah. So John answers no here, but that really is who he is. But because he said no to being Elijah... This delegation asked him another question. Well, are you the prophet? And that speaks of another Old Testament prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses predicted that there would be the coming of a prophet similar to him. And in the first century, uh, they didn't know who this prophet would be. Some people believed that it was going to be the same person as the Messiah. Others people believed that it was going to be a different person than the Messiah. But later on in the book of Acts, both Peter and Stephen point to this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 and say Jesus is the prophet spoken of by Moses. Jesus is that second Moses who does what Moses could not and did not do. And so, so far all they have is a string of denials from John. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. So it's like, all right, we got to have something from you. Tell us something. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? We said, hey, we have to give answers to those people who sent us. And then John the Baptist responds by quoting from Isaiah 40, the passage that we read this morning. And in the original context of that passage, uh, it's God uh, speaking to Israel, calling for them to make way the return of the exiles, that God was going to lead his people back to Israel and they needed to prepare the way for that return. Uh, but additionally, it points to the return or the coming of the Messiah, uh, who is going to lead his people out of uh, spiritual enslavery, spiritual exile. They're going to be back into right relationship with God the Father. Uh, and uh, so the people that John is speaking to are to prepare for the coming king, uh, not by leveling out the roads, but by making way in their hearts. John was sent to prepare the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. And that is what he was called to do. And that is what he faithfully did. And it's also interesting of just uh, of what John says here. He just says, I am a voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. See, John doesn't assign any significance to himself. Again, one pastor says the point of the quotation is that it gives no prominence to the preacher whatsoever. He's not an important person like a prophet or the Messiah. He is no more than a voice. He is a voice, moreover, with but one thing to say, make straight the way of the Lord. 
That is what John was called to do. Uh, and uh, John the Baptist sees himself as insignificant because he just prepares the way for somebody who's more important. Uh, and and this, this idea is commonplace, right, uh, of very important people sending others to, to iron out the details before they come in. Right, and uh, what's what's interesting is the president of the United States. He's he's kind of important, right? Uh, so the Secret Service, uh, up to three months ahead of time, uh, him arriving at a destination, uh, they go to wherever he's going to be staying, wherever he's going to be traveling through, and they are preparing the way. Uh, they are making sure that his visit at that location goes smoothly, and they're uh, checking every contingency and making every single preparation from having additional uh, blood of the same blood type uh, of the president on hand, having a uh, helicopter, having uh, police notified, hotels notified, uh, going and speaking with people of where he's going to be staying. They make all of these preparations to allow the president's stay, his visit somewhere, to go smoothly and without hiccup. And John sees himself as that, as somebody who is less important, going and making way for somebody who is more important. And that is his role. That is his concern. And we need to have the same concern. John the Baptist's role was not to get attention, was not to point to himself. His role was to point to Jesus. He was a nobody called to prepare the way for a somebody. That is what he was called to do, his task, his mission. And that is what we are all called to do, to assign no importance to ourselves, but to speak highly of Jesus. Uh, and if we, if we go back to those moments when we are afraid to speak about Jesus, what is that we are typically afraid of? What are we so concerned about when we have an opportunity to speak of Jesus and then we grow silent? We're concerned about maybe what other people think about us. What the consequences might be. Right? Uh, in, in the introduction, uh, when uh, this pastor, as a young man, is working with this big, burly, uh, petty officer, what is he worried about? This guy may physically harm me if I speak about Jesus. If I acknowledge that I am a Christian. Well, in those moments, what is it that's most important to us? Sometimes it's ourselves. Whether that's our, our reputation, what other people think about us. Well, if, if I say this, they may think of me poorly. Their estimation of me may decrease. Or sometimes it's uh, that physical safety. And in those moments, what is it that's most important to us? Us, ourselves. So you could also say, in that moment, who are we worshiping? Ourselves. We are worshiping our own safety, our own reputation. And we can't, we can't worship ourselves and be a faithful witness to Christ. We can't be overly concerned with other people's opinions about us. Because if we're overly concerned with other people's opinions about us, we won't, we won't say anything. We'll never speak. We'll never witness about who Jesus is. We'll just constantly be bound up in fear. If we're going to be faithful witnesses, we have to lower our own estimation of ourselves. We have to think less of ourselves, not more highly of ourselves. If we want to be a faithful witness for Christ, we have to confess, first and foremost, our own idolatry of self. 
that we value ourselves too highly and then we need to ask the Lord to help us to worship Him more, to see Him as greater, Him as larger. And that is what we also see here in John the Baptist. So we move to this second attitude that we need to put on. A faithful witness announces the supremacy of Christ in this last paragraph this morning. John is going to be you know, giving the other portion of this. We need to grow downward in humility and we need to see Christ loom ever larger in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. And we see this as, as the delegation continues to question him. Look at me at verse, verse 24. That they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now, and what they're really going after is, hey, by what authority are you doing this? Because remember, John's baptism is different. John is the one doing the baptizing. So they're saying, all right, if you're the one doing this, what authority do you have? You just said you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. Who says you can do this? That's what they're coming and asking. And the Pharisees, of those who were among the Pharisees in this delegation, were very familiar uh, with every ritual in the Old Testament. They were, they were the rule keepers. Uh, they had gone through the entire uh, Torah, the first five books of the of the Bible, and they had written out every single rule that they needed to keep to be in right relationship with God. They had, it's brought it all down to like 365 laws that they needed to abide by. So they were very familiar with rituals. So they're saying, hey, John, who says you can do this? And by what authority are you doing this? And this is what he says in verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you one stands you, among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And that is John's response. And what's interesting, he kind of redirects the conversation and say, what authority do you have to do these things? He says, well, I, I baptize with water. But, but the point is, hey, there's somebody greater than me here. And that is what John is saying. John's baptism was intended to prepare the hearts of the people to embrace the Messiah. His baptism pointed to their need for spiritual cleansing and for forgiveness. But there was a greater somebody who would do a baptism greater than John the Baptist. Now, the other three gospel accounts all say the same thing. When John says this, they record that he immediately also says that, I I baptize with water, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's one coming who will give you the Spirit. I can I can do this outward ritual, but the one coming after me is going to be able to transform you. But in John's gospel, that... That truth waits. Uh, it's going to be in the next paragraph, which we'll look at next Sunday. But John just makes this emphasis of, I baptize with water, but there's somebody greater. And and John begins this uh, emphasis upon himself uh, here in, in chapter 1. That every time John the Baptist speaks about himself in chapter 1, uh, it's emphatic in the Greek. He emphasizes I. Uh, and as if to make a distinction, to say, well, I do this, uh, and it's kind of a, a making a contrast. When you don't want to align yourself with somebody else, you say, well, I do this. And kind of, well, they do, and the implication is, well, they do it differently. 
Uh, and when John speaks of himself constantly in that way, he's he's making a contrast between himself and the Messiah. And in that comparison, in that contrast, John is always the lesser. He is always the one who is lower in that comparison. And it, he makes that statement that, that even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Well, the reason that he says that, so uh, according to Jewish teaching, and one rabbi has said this about the relationship between a, a student and his teacher was this. I quote the rabbi. He says, every service which a slave performs for his master, a disciple will perform for his teacher, except to untie his sandal strap. See, that was deemed to be too low uh, for a disciple to do for his teacher. Everything else he was expected to do in the same way that a slave would conduct himself, except for this one little area. And now you have John the Baptist saying what? That I am unworthy to even do that. He's emphasizing, no, the, the lowest of slaves does that, but a, a, a teacher doesn't uh, expect that of a student. But I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. And John highlights the greatness of the, the one coming after him by emphasizing his own unworthiness. John has forgotten completely about himself and is focused upon the greatness and the supremacy of the one coming after him, who we know to be Jesus. But if, if we're going to see that, we can ask a question, what makes somebody do that? What brings somebody to that point of being willing to, to completely forget about themselves and focus solely upon Christ? Well, the only thing that will make someone do that is by seeing Christ as who he is, as great and glorious and completely worthy. There's a story of uh, an African convert to Christianity who told many people about Jesus despite uh, his great suffering. He suffered from a disease called uh, elephantiasis. And this is a terribly painful disease that causes the enlargement and thickening of body tissues and specifically the an enormous enlargement of a limb. So this, this Christian suffered from this and the disease had affected this man's leg so that it was extremely difficult for him to walk. Yet he thought nothing about his own illness and every single day he made his way around the village with the goal of introducing them to his Savior, with telling them about Jesus. So every day he did this, he traveled around uh, for months in his own village, and when he had visited all of the huts in his village, he began to take the gospel to another village, about two miles away, through the jungle. And every morning he started out painfully on his enormous swollen legs, and every night he returned, having visited many families in the neighboring village. And he would go there and remain for several weeks before he uh, would decide, okay, well, I need to go somewhere else. I need to share the gospel elsewhere now. My village has heard the gospel. This neighboring village has heard the gospel. So now he, he identified another village about 12 miles away. And there was a missionary in his town that said, please, please don't do this. This missionary was a doctor that said, you can't travel 12 miles on your leg in the condition that you are in and travel back and forth. But this young Christian 
wanted to take the good news to others. He wanted to take the message of the gospel to those who needed to hear it, no matter what it cost him. And this young Christian one day slipped away through the jungle quietly before dawn, traveled the 12 miles, and came to that other village sometime before noon, his legs just an absolute mess, scratched up, bruised, completely swollen. And guess what he did as soon as he got there? He began to tell people about Jesus. And he went to everybody there, telling them about Jesus. And it was not until the sun was sinking low in the sky that day that he began to make his journey back. It took him all morning to travel there, and now he's going to walk through the jungle, a bruised and bloody mess, on his way back. And at around midnight, he arrived back home to his village, bleeding and almost unconscious. And he goes to the missionary doctor who tended him and dressed his feet. And so what we see in this man is someone who thought nothing of himself, but everything of Jesus. That's what made him a faithful and effective witness for Christ. Christ loomed large in his life, and he loomed small. And John the Baptist was absolutely convinced of the same truths. John's estimation of himself grew smaller and smaller, and his estimation of Christ grew bigger and bigger. So then we naturally see this in John the Baptist, and then we have to ask ourselves some some questions, right? How do I speak of of Jesus? And given similar opportunities, do I speak this highly of Jesus and so humbly of myself? Do I point to Jesus in the same way that John the Baptist pointed to him? That's a good question to ask, but here's a better question to ask. How big is Jesus in my thoughts, in my attitudes, and in my affections? Do I love Jesus that much? Am I that convinced of his greatness, his worthiness, that I I naturally see myself as smaller, less worthy, because Jesus is so large and so great in my heart and in my mind? See, I, I, I'll never be convinced that I need to speak boldly for Jesus until he looms large in my life. That, that will never happen. I can pray for boldness, uh, and, the, and the Spirit can give me boldness, but I also need to, to begin to see Jesus as bigger and bigger each and every day. And as He grows larger in my life, what will naturally happen to me? I'll grow smaller. And to, to echo what John the Baptist will say a little bit later in John chapter 3, John the Baptist said, speaking of Jesus, that, that He must increase and I must decrease. That is the attitude that we need to have. That is the, the, the heart layer that we need to begin to address if we are, if we want to be faithful witnesses, if we want to boldly proclaim Jesus, if we want to not shrink back in fear when others ask if we are Christians or if we uh, see opportunities to speak of Jesus. We need to have Jesus grow bigger in our own hearts and in our own minds. That's what we see here. In this portion of John's gospel, we see his faithful 
witnessing. We see him as the example that we are to follow, the model, the model of what we are to say and how we are to conduct ourselves. That as we interact with others, as we have opportunities to share who Jesus is, that we need to speak lowly of ourselves and highly of Christ. And and as we look at this passage, let's put ourselves for a moment in the sandals of John the Baptist. If you look back at verse 19, it says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. And, and in verse 19, we're introduced to this, this word, the concept of the Jews. Now, in John's gospel, when he uses that term, he's speaking of the Jewish leadership, most frequently of the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men, 70 Jewish leaders, who were the, the governing authority in the, the nation. And they were the, the highest authority under Rome uh, among the Jews themselves. But they couldn't do certain things. Uh, but in sending this delegation to John the Baptist, as I said, this wasn't this wasn't something that was he wasn't just around the corner. Uh, this was a, a planned event. This they sent this delegation. It was a big deal, and honestly, it was a power move. They're coming uh, to speak to John, to ask him questions. Hey, what are you doing? Who says you can do this? And what's the implication of them saying, who says you can do this? Implication is, we didn't say you could do this. So you're in some trouble. They're they're coming to strong arm him. They're coming to say, what authority do you have? What do you think you're doing out here in the wilderness? Baptizing people, not not doing what we're saying for people to do. And it says two groups came so that the Jews sent priests and Levites. Well, priests were in the line of, of Aaron, uh, and they served exactly that as priests. And the, and the Levites, uh, was the larger group. Aaron is a single family in, in the, the tribe of Levi. And the Levites served at, in the temple in a variety of capacities. They served as musicians, they served as teachers, but they also, they were also the muscle. They were like the temple guard. And so when they send this delegation to John the Baptist, the priests are there to question him, and the Levites are there as as the muscle to say, "Hey, w- what's going on?" And and what's remarkable, if if you think about how John responds to this, suddenly his response is that much more amazing, is it not? Because here this delegation is coming to straighten him out, and what does he say to him? He he doesn't shrink back. He says, hey, I'm just a voice calling for everybody to prepare their hearts because the Messiah is coming. And who is he speaking to? Who does that message apply to? It applies to the very people who are coming to set him straight. He says, hey, you need to prepare your hearts for the coming Messiah. That's what he says to this delegation who's doing this power move to come and straighten him out. As we look at this scene, it's almost like it's 21st century America. It's almost like it's uh, a situation in America where there's hostility towards anybody who would proclaim Christ, who would take on his name. And as I've said before, uh, the world isn't growing increasingly hostile to Christ. It's always been hostile to Christ. That's what we see And yet John boldly proclaimed the message that had been entrusted to him. 
And how did he do that? What motivated him? What enabled him to speak so boldly to this group of authorities that were coming to straighten him out, coming to question him? And Well, a small view of himself and an ever-increasing view of Christ's glory, of Christ's worthiness. And that's what we need to have. That's what will equip us and enable us to speak boldly. That will be what equips us and enables us to no longer shrink back in fear or to have regrets later on about not speaking for Christ. And as we see these opportunities that are all around us, those opportunities to speak for Christ will always exist. But as I said, those temptations to shrink back will also accompany those opportunities every single time. So the solution is that Jesus must increase in our hearts and we must decrease. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you with a desire to acknowledge our own unworthiness. Lord, we long to to acknowledge that you are supreme. That you are infinitely greater than we are. And Lord, we confess that we, we don't always think that way. That there are many times and many occasions when we see ourselves as more important. Lord, there are so many occasions in which we worship our reputations. We worship other people's opinions. We worship the comfort and security of jobs. We worship the comfort and security of our physical well-being. But Lord, help us to forget ourselves. Help us to leave everything else behind so that we might faithfully serve Christ, that we might faithfully bear witness to him. Lord, help us to echo the words of the Apostle Paul that we consider everything else as rubbish in comparison to Christ. That being our own health, our own well-being. Lord, may we be those who focus upon your glory, your greatness. May that transform our hearts and our minds. And then may you put within our hearts a burden to share the gospel with others. Lord, may we be like that that young man in Africa who is willing to, to travel far and wide, even at great physical cost to himself, because he was convinced of your greatness and other people's need to hear of you. Lord, place that burden upon our hearts. Help us to be faithful witnesses here in Meridian, in Boise, in Nampa, in the greater Treasure Valley. Lord, use us as instruments in your hands to proclaim the greatness of Christ. Help us to be voices in the wilderness, proclaiming, prepare the way for the coming King. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.